Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Magnesia Stabilizer Conia in times of corrugated tin. So I put a question out on LinkedIn yesterday that was a little bit of a history lesson as well. Uh, who came up with intermedullary instruments for doing the tibial and the femoral cut? And as a bonus, this gentleman also came up with slotted cutting guides for the same. Got some answers out there, and I promise to make whoever got it famous. And we have a winner, Jim Bloom of BC Medical up in Chicago. You are the man. You went absolutely nothing, but you get some street cred and some bragging rights in the OR tomorrow. It is Dr. Leo Whiteside and Joseph Little with Flower Orthopedics. You get an honorable mention. That's who came up with it. And guess what? You get to hear from him today, and you're going to want to hang around for that. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. He is a founding father in this industry. So before we continue our series on everybody's favorite word, humility, and how it relates to device sales, I wanted to address a super quick question I got on LinkedIn as a direct message, and I will read it verbatim. Could you possibly address work attire for representatives across the country? What should we be wearing into our accounts? Well, I'm not your dad, even though it is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to those of you who are. Not your mom. I'm not your sales manager. But today... I will tell you what Tip O'Neill once said so famously, all politics is local. And I'm a firm believer that all dress code is local. So continuing our thought process on humility, what does your team leader want you to wear is a question I would ask. Uh, And be willing to go with whatever. Ask, what do you think I should be wearing? Uh, Aside from that, if there's some individual autonomy here, I have seen everything across the country, and a lot of it is localized. The people up north tend to get a little dressier. I've seen in the south, especially in some of the hotter areas, everybody's wearing scrubs, including the employees outside of the OR. Um, It really is what's going on in your local neck of the woods, what your competitor's wearing. Uh, you don't want to underdress them. That's something I always look at. If they're dressing super nice, then oftentimes I will just kind of, uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? So that's a quick answer to it. I don't think there's any set thing. Uh, always fall under the leadership of your team and what they want. And aside from that, just kind of look around, see what other people are doing and, uh, and what you are comfortable in doing yourself. That was a great question. And just a quick reminder to the Device Nation audience, if you have a question that you just don't feel comfortable asking in your team dynamic or whatever, shoot it to me on a direct message and I will try to answer it. And if I don't have the answer, I will find somebody who does and then relay it to you on the show. I think this is all good stuff. When I first started, I really struggled with antiversion, and I just was so embarrassed to ask the surgeon about it, and I had to reach out to some people close to me to get that answer. So I know what it's like to have that that niggling thing out there that you're almost um, afraid to ask in the public space, right? Well, this is a way to do it anonymously and get that answer that you've always wanted. So so shoot me a message, and we'll... We'll try to get an answer for you. So last week, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Headley, a truly another founding father in this business. I've uh, been very humbled by some of the people I've gotten a chance to talk to recently. Just, just amazing stuff. 
And he brought up the whole idea of the three A's in the context of an orthopedist running a practice. You remember what they were? They were availability, affability, that's a word you don't hear every day, and ability. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack these three words over the next three episodes, and we're going to use it in the context of humility, see how it connects, and see how we can integrate that into our practice, our practice, our everyday life as a medical device rep. So let's jump into the first one. Let's look at availability. So availability, let's look at a definition of availability. What does that word even mean? Of use or service or accessible. That's a good word. So let's look at this word in the context of basically three things today, and then we'll jump into our interview. The account perspective, that means your availability to your customers. And then number two, let's look at your availability in the context of a team and even as a team leader. So we'll divide that into two as well. So account perspective, team perspective, both as a member and as a leader. So on the account side, I've heard it said over the years, you never want your phone to go into voicemail when a customer calls you because you know what? They just might call another rep. So you always want to be available on the phone and never let it go into your voicemail. There's a part of this business that just demands that you drop everything on the behalf of your customers. That's It's been said a million times, this is not a job, it is a lifestyle. And when people say that about medical device, that's kind of what they're talking about right there, is that concept, is that you're at the movies with your wife, your pager goes off, you got to go. You're at a birthday party, a trauma case just came in, and you're on call, you got to go. That's the lifestyle aspect of this. Availability to your customers just It's part of the job, and you just got to go limp in the sense and get over that because you're going to be a very frustrated individual if your schedule is king to you uh, because you will start out the day with four things to do, 10 things get dumped on top of it. By the end of the day, you didn't get anything done that you wanted to get done because you were dropping everything to take care of things that your customers were demanding, whether it was cases or we need you to do this, do that. It's just part of the job. So availability, don't need to talk this to death. You always need to be available for your customers. As an aside, it really is about the patient, right? So your availability for your customer is really, and ultimately, your availability for the patient. So sometimes that can help us with perspective and not get all whiny when things uh, in terms of our schedule are not going right at all. There's very much a tyranny of the urgent in this job, and it's just something You just got to accept. It's just part of the job. So let's go into availability in a team dynamic. So I remember it like it was yesterday. I had a new hire and I had a conflict. It was a Saturday morning uh, bipolar case and I couldn't make it. I had stuff I had to do. I called my new hire. I said, look, I really need your help to cover this case. And there was silence on the phone, then a very begrudging yes. And I thought, well, that's interesting you just got hired and you already have a little bit of an attitude about working on the weekend and being able to help out the person the person who hired you. I thought that's kind of ironic. Now contrast that with a friend of mine up in North Carolina and he was telling me about one of their team members the other day. This guy is so available. Unlike the guy I just described, he will do anything anytime and he does it in a cheerful way, not begrudging. 
and they look for opportunities to give this guy money every year. It's crazy. He is their rock star, and what is it about him that makes him a rock star? It's that one word, believe it or not, availability. And look, availability is not just saying yes and your heart's not in it, right? It is being a cheerful giver. It is somebody that's saying, look, I'll be glad to help you out. I mean, obviously within reason. If you're in the hospital, you can't help somebody out. Or if you've got a crushing conflict, you can't help. I understand that. We're not, we're not getting crazy here. But we are saying, as we've always said, that sales is helping. And it's not just helping the people that pay your salary in the sense that your customers do, but in the context of a team. It's helping each other on the team and being cheerful about it. That just makes people's day when you come in their world and lend them a hand and a smile is on your face. So let's say you're the team lead and you're not one of the minions. Well, that word becomes even more important because you know what? A lot of people that get elevated to team lead were the people that were used to working by themselves all the time. And they have a hard time sometimes being available to others because they're just in this mindset of the army of one. So I think it's even more important as a team leader to really embrace that word and to be available for the people on your team, to reach out all the time. Hey, how are you doing? Make yourself available, not only on a a collegial and a relationship side, but be willing to to model this behavior of helping other people. It's not like once you become team lead that everybody else has to do your heavy lifting. I'm a firm believer that you lead by example and you don't ever ask someone else to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. So look for opportunities to be available in the context of your team uh, with sweat equity and mental equity, you know, whatever it is. Uh, And I think that um, it will enhance the relationship and the team aspect of the group of people that you're working with. So one little aside here, I want you to think about this for a second. My friend talks behind this guy's back all the time about how awesome he is, and it's really that one word, availability. What are they saying behind your back? Are they saying that same kind of stuff? He's always there. She's always there. When we need her with a smile on her face, always willing to help out. What are people saying about you as a team leader, as a team member? What are your accounts saying about you? I've heard accounts tell me about other reps saying they have been so good to us over the years. They were always there when we need them. When we had an emergency, they showed up. I mean, I hear these things. What are people saying behind your back. So let's tie this up. Where's the why? Why do we do this, right? Is it just to get something out of people? Heck no. Heck no. I mean, what's the alternative, right? To not be available? Well, that doesn't end well. But at the end of the day, the why is because it's the right thing to do. I mean, I know I'm going to have a scheduling conflict, and the golden rule tells me, you know, I'm going to do to other people what I would want people to do for me. So that's exactly how I'm going to treat this thing. I'm going to try to help people out because I want them to say something nice about me behind my back. I don't want it to be said of me, ah, he just never helps anybody. It's all about him, right? I want it to be a good report. You want there to be good news surrounding you, just like our friend in North Carolina. You're going to need help one day. So if you put anything into that bank account, or is it all about withdrawals? right? It's an ATM machine. You have to make deposits in this thing. So I hope that helped. Availability. Availability. 
One person that I am so thankful was available for us is Dr. Leo Whiteside. We are in the presence of greatness. And if you don't know who this is, and I'll give some of you young whippersnappers a break here. Uh, you know, you don't know a lot of these founding fathers, but I strongly suggest this week, just take a few moments to keyword search his name on the internet and just look at who you're getting to hear today. Just amazing stuff. I am so humbled that he took time out of his life to talk to our audience. Uh, we're going to get so much from it. I know I did. So let's uh, let's welcome to the show, Dr. Leo Whiteside. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you and and discuss orthopedic surgery and uh, especially implant surgery. So Dr. Whiteside, when and if you choose to retire, I firmly believe that your jersey will hang from the rafters in this arena called (laughs) (laughs) joint reconstruction. Nobody's ever going to be able to use your number again. Uh, (laughs) did, did uh, Did you set out to do this, to make this big of an impact on this business, or did it just kind of happen? As you went along, uh, went along in years. Well, you, you know, it's, it's it's hard to say for sure. Uh, I was passionate about uh, arthroplasty and uh, biomechanics uh, very early. When I uh, transitioned from my neurosurgery path into orthopedics uh, during my training, I, uh, I I did it because I was just uh, fascinated by a few cases I was involved in in orthopedic surgery. And, and I thought if I could do that in, in my career, it would just be a fabulous way to, to get up out of bed and go in and, and work like hell all day. And uh, so in, in the process of learning orthopedics, uh, it was just a, a it, it was just natural to get into arthroplasty because of the fascinating things that were going on in materials and in uh, uh, biomechanics of joints. It it was so attractive to get into that. I figured that that's where I'd focus my energy and and then found some uh, research avenues to to look at. And uh, I must say, you you never think, well, I'll make an impact. You, you, You just think, well, can I get into this and learn something, uh, uh, figure out new things about it. And, uh, the, uh, the upshot of all, all that kind of never does hit you until, uh, you're at this point in my, in your career. And, uh, and somebody says, we're going to nominate you for a lifetime achievement award. And you wake up and say, what the hell? <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, it's not over. My life's not over yet. Quit that. No, it's not. So the first time I ever saw your name, uh, and this is going to age me, but I remember when the boxes said Dow Corning Wright. Oh, sure. And it was the white side ortholock knee. And yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. If, my, if my memory serves correctly, I got I got two questions. Number one, what was that whole project like? And number two, uh you, your system was the first to feature uh, intramedullary uh, instrumentation and a slotted guide for that femoral yep. valgus cut. So how did yep. you come up with that? And, and like well, I said, just tell me about the project. You know, most people have forgotten that, but that, you're exactly right. I developed some intramedullary alignment instruments uh, in the cadaver lab because I must say I was struggling with alignment in total knee replacement. 
And my professor at the time, Fred Reynolds, was uh, funneling all the knee replacements to me because he was a hip surgeon and didn't want to do these knees. And so it was a really great opportunity to me. I had to get these things in there straight. I still have to get in, in there straight. And what I found was if I just put a rod down the center of the medullary canal of the femur and and uh, cut at a five-degree uh, valgus angle to that, I would uh, I'd get that femur right pretty much every time. And then another rod down the center of the tibia would save me the struggle of trying to fiddle with these external alignment guides, which were really not very good back then, and give me a perpendicular cut on the tibia and then of course that lines the knee up and then you deal with the ligaments after that uh it, it seemed very natural to me but it was too too simple and straightforward for for the <laughs> then existing academic uh, community and they resisted it said that uh, that's crazy and i remember charlie townley got up at one of the important meetings to to uh, discuss my paper and said uh well this just absolutely will not work and that was pretty much all he said and sat down and so <laughs> that but i'll tell you what i found that you go into a uh uh into a skills lab and take 50 surgeons in that skills lab all sharing uh uh two per cadaver knee and every one of them would put that knee in straight with intermedular alignment and then, as you mentioned, the addition to that was slotted cutting guides. We had nothing of the sort, but we had these kind of uh, eyeball things that you'd put on and pin down and that sort of thing, uh, or or have just the nurse hole where you cut with it. Sure. And uh, I found that if you just attach a slotted guide to the, the intermedullary rod that you had on there and slide it up and down, Referencing the cortex in the front and the back of the femur, it would put you dead on. And then the next thing was figuring out how to rotationally align that femoral component. And it it, it fell into my hands because I was working on uh, unicompartmental knee a little bit later. And the AP axis, center of the uh, intercondylar notch posteriorly, center of the deepest part of the patellar groove, uh, and followed on up to the proximal edge would give you rotational alignment of the femur. And so that lined up in flexion. You just cut perpendicular to that. So you had the medullary canal of the femur, the medullary canal of the tibia, and the AP axis. And I'll tell you what, that's what I still use. I, uh, I, I'm, and, and I'm still certain that if you don't do that, you're going to have consequences that get to your patients sooner or later. Yeah, and the, the other the other thing about the, uh, the, the that knee system, the the, the so-called white side uh, uh, ortholock knee was cementless fixation, and <laughs> that was integral to the whole thing. A porous coat on that, and we were uh, not allowed by the FDA to advertise it for cementless fixation, but I used it that way. We all knew that was what we were going to do and kind of that became the way of getting um, our porous coated implants on the on on the market in on the in small print it said uh, for cemented use only <laughs> i think we're still using that ruse a little bit a little bit now 
and and so I, that was a, a great project with Dow Corning Wright. I, I really thank them and all the wonderful guys that I worked with back then, and the the young engineers that were uh, fresh out and and now have gone deeply into this industry and have been successful, and a lot of them have retired. What inspired you to go all in on cementless with that system? Uh, I mean, it wasn't really the the conventional wisdom at the time. I know it. It was not. You're exactly right. And I was working on the hip and the knee at the same time. And we had good examples of cementless hip that had preceded Charnley's work with cement. And, you know, in the 60s, when I heard about Charnley and his pressure-injected cement with the thumb pressurization and all that, I thought, it's crazy to put this toxic material into bone and really expect that to last a lifetime. And, and you know, I think Charlie agreed because he suggested nobody under the age of 67 and tell them it'll last about seven years. And, and uh, that, was the, that was his dictum. This is the short-term solution, and you're going to have to deal with a mess later. And so I was in the in in the process of watching that mess develop, and and I was certain that bone would grow into porous coating. We had clinical evidence with the madrepic and a couple of other things, the ring uh, hip and and the lord hip, a couple of things like that that were very clearly effective cementless. And, and my feeling was we should focus on and develop cementless in the knee it was already kind of coming forward in the hip uh you know it it took a it took a big hit from from marketing i'm convinced it was just a marketing issue that stopped growth of of, uh, cementless total knee replacement after these big failures of the pca knee i watched it and i watched the the politics involved in it as well. And that's where I learned to have real skepticism for orthopedic marketing. I'm sorry to say that to the people who are, live on orthopedic marketing, but I think it's one of the biggest sources of misinformation in the world. In um, 1995, Smith & Nephew launched the Profix knee system, and that's where I saw your name come up on my windshield again. Uh, I, and that was yeah. the cementless uh, knee that, that kind of launched you yet again. And yes. I know you've done that for a while. Is there any place for the smell of monomer in one of your cases today, or is it still cementless as much as you can? <laughs> no. No, it's, uh, it's cementless, except whenever I cement two dead things together. Now, occasionally... You occasionally got to cement an augment onto a femoral component. And uh, the cement is very effective if you're good with your hands and if it's, uh, and, and you think and give enough time set. You, and you have decent, uh, uh, well made implants for augmentation. It's great to make a sort of a custom uh, augment system uh, at the bedside or, or at the operative table. But I will not pressure uh, pressurized cement into anything living i just don't do that anymore there are so many easy ways to do cementless fixation of the hip and knee that uh, i just uh, maybe maybe never but i'll tell you that I'll tell you one thing for sure for the last 25 years i haven't used cement against living tissue wow 
once. So tell me, uh, uh, tell me some tips and tricks here. Dr. Hoffman came on this show recently and was talking about his uh, bone slurry that he likes to use to uh, biological cement. Is there anything that you like to do to, to try to enhance fixation on the tibia side? Yeah, uh, very important issue is fixation of that tibial component because that's a flat surface. And, uh, you know, Aaron uh, used the, this slurry, and I, and I think that's fine if you don't have a cutting system that makes a good flat surface cut and you don't want to bother with that. Then you can then use a slurry of, of uh, uh, patient's autograph under that surface. And, and Aaron did a nice job of showing how that really does work. But one thing Aaron did, was have an effective stem on that implant and also screw it down. He used screws to hold it down. Now, if you don't do what he did, that is firmly fix that implant to, to the bone, you're not going to be successful. And, you know, Aaron's a good technician too. You watch him operate and he does make a good cut. And his slurry that he uses just uh, fills in the little bit of gap that would cause toggle, and then he augments that with the, with screws. I, I tend to get on board with the rigid fixation and the viable surface. So I make a cut, and then I put the trial on and test it with a four-touch test with my finger right in the middle, one finger, one hand on the middle of that tray, and, and the other finger makes four corner touch tests, and if it visibly toggles that's uh, uh more than 100 microns of motion and with that i redo the cut until it does not toggle and then when i put that stem that implant down it has an effective stem so this the the component that i use has a choice of stems big fat ones and little skinny ones and almost always big fat ones that require pressurization they require driving down uh and they're tight well before it's seated then it seats on porous surface a fully porous surface uh and uh, and partial porous coating of the pegs and then it's held down with screws now i've I've, throughout my career gone back and forth on screws Every time I stop using screws, I look at my x-rays and I think, oh, there's a radiolucent line there. Is that going to be bad? And I haven't found any of them without screws loosened. But I feel better about it if I use screws. And I I don't want to sit there and say, well, I'll make a choice here, screws or not. I just put screws in all of them. If you have a well-designed system, there's no downside to using screws and there's and and the big upside here is uh, an effective stem. Uh, if, if we did some work in the cadaver lab some time ago with one of my fellows, and he found that if you have an effective stem and four screws, you can fix it well in the softest of bone. And so that's when I tell you, you better use an implant that has an effective stem, and that generally means a taper on the undersurface and choice of stems you you better have one that allows you to use screws like the like screws in the acetabular component of your total hip that maybe you don't always need them but you better be ready in case the thing really is not tightly fixed to soft bone 
And you have to be a decent technician and insist on a flat surface that you can that you can screw this implant down to. It's it's a matter of just being a good carpenter, good mechanic. Just got to ask this real quick because it's been a running theme lately. But do you do any carpentry outside of the OR? Uh, you know, I used to, and I used to do auto mechanics too. I was an avid Porsche. Uh, mechanic learned a bunch about how to take down a Porsche 911 engine before they became uh, totally computerized, right? And 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 how to put it back together. I had every special piece of equipment that it took to tear down a Porsche 911 engine. I got pretty far along in learning how to weld, and I had some early experience in machine shop work when I was in high school. And learned uh, that it, <laughs> one thing, learned how to work around grown men and, and to realize that if you piss them off, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> 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 and, and so that, that taught me to, to deal with orthopedic surgeons. <laughs> we, we have a similar background. Mine was with a paint crew, and I was a young guy with a bunch of old guys, and I found out real quick if I rubbed them the wrong way, it just did. It made a man out of me, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And one, another thing I learned up in, in the machine shop is uh, clean up after yourself. If you work in a clean shop, you're going to be doing good work. And if, you, and if you don't clean up as you go, then you have a mess you can't clean up when you're finished. So that's another thing I learned is, is as from those machinists was clean up as you go. If you go in there and be a, a, a sloppy guy and try to clean up at the end, you got stuff. Uh, in crevices that you you're never going to get cleaned out of there. Somebody else is going to come in and, uh, and and clean up after you. And and I tell you, if you do that in surgery, clean up constantly as you work. And and that's another very important issue. Clean that with irrigation constantly. And you mentioned uh, press fitting and and bone in growth. If you cool and clean that surface as you cut it, you won't be trying to to get bone ingrowth out of a dead bone surface. You it's, you keep it cool and irrigated. And, you know, that's another thing that Aaron Hoffman talks about, too, is end up with a viable bone surface, cool that blade as you cut, and 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 then and do this with care. And if you, tra- if you irrigate the trash out and add antibiotic to your irrigation fluid, you won't have infections anymore. I mean, uh, you'll go 20 years without infection of a primary joint if you irrigate it with antibiotic irrigation solution throughout the case. If that's one thing I could train young guys on would be learn to use antibiotic irrigation throughout your entire procedure and never cut bone to the point that it smokes and leave that dead bone in that patient with bacteria that you haven't flushed and cleaned out throughout the entire operation. I, I've got to talk about ligament balancing for a second. Uh, ligament balancing in total knee arthroplasty, an instructional manual. You're the author of this book. Yeah. I saw a copy of it on Amazon yesterday, and you'll be pleased to know uh, it was priced at nine hundred and two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that cool or not? That I'm is, rich. I've got a bunch. Of, I'm sitting right here in my office. <laughs> you're the and I didn't check to see it. You're not the one selling that book, right? <laughs> no, I, I'm going to have to start a new enterprise, though. 
Uh, I remember Dr. Insall, and I am so fortunate that I actually got to go in surgery with this gentleman, and I'll never forget him saying that a knee that is not balanced will fail. And I have some questions uh, for you. You know, we used to get in this whole back and forth about do we balance uh, before the cuts, after the cuts? Uh, What's your order of operations for, for doing your soft tissue releases? Well, I, I think you must make your bone bone surface cuts first uh, to to get or, or I shouldn't say first, but you must make your bone surface cuts based on anatomic structures on the bone, not on deformed ligaments. If you let the ligaments guide your bone surface cuts, you're just essentially putting the knee in crooked, uh, and and the worse your ligament imbalance, the more crooked you're going to accept when you use those deformed ligaments to guide your cuts. So, so you must find bone landmarks on on the knee. Now, some people find that they can't get into the knee unless they release these tight ligaments. But you should remember that if you release tight ligaments, uh, then you may over-release because you haven't gotten to the osteophytes yet. So here's what I suggest. Get, lig- get landmarks that you can trust. Make the bone cuts clear out the osteophytes, then start to deal with the ligaments. And then you can deal with the ligaments with tensioners or with trials. I just assume, I, I assume that uh, the, the, the tensioners are going to be partially accurate and the trials are going to give me a three-dimensional feel and, uh, and access to do the ligaments once the trials are in. So I would, I would want to go directly to the trials evaluate the ligaments, and then release the ligaments that are tight. And if you understand the knee, you'll understand which ligaments are tight. The ligaments that are that, that are, uh, are tight in extension are the posterior ones, and the, the ligaments that are tight in flexion are the anterior ones. With that, you can figure out what to release. So tell me about uh, the periosteal elevator versus the spinal needle. I've seen this done both ways, uh, and I, I, I've yes. been dying to ask you this question. Any thoughts on on that? Yes, I learned that uh, that um, high crusting technique from Johann Bellemans. Uh, I think he was the first to start talking about that, uh, and uh, I was fascinated right away. And I pretty much stopped doing periosteal elevation or ligament balancing and used the high crusting technique exclusively. So, uh, and you can get to most ligaments uh, with with a spinal needle safely. And there are several techniques, and I'm in the process of putting together some some uh, videos uh, that I'll put on YouTube on, on to to explain how to do this high crusting. But I want—I think Johan Bellamont ought to be the guy that's that's pointed to. He's the one. He's the pie cruster in charge here. One question I've always wanted to ask uh, somebody of your of your stature is this, and it's it's going to seem kind of silly, but I was in a case one time, and the surgeon had made the distal femoral cut and made his tibial cut, then put a spacer block to look at what his extension presented and said, ah, it's too tight. I've got to take more bone. And in my mind, I was wondering, we haven't removed any posterior osteophytes yet. And there was a lot on that particular x-ray. And uh-huh. yes. and we ended up using a thick surface. Uh-huh. And I always wondered, 
Is that a is that a um, a little premature to be measuring that extension gap when you haven't even gotten back and released the capsule or any osteophytes? Yes, absolutely. You are so right. Okay. You just said everything that needs to be said about how that works. If you don't take out the osteophytes, you still have deformities of the ligaments, and they can lead you to make some pretty catastrophic uh, bone surface cuts. Uh, and and it's even worse then if you make those bone surface cuts and get the knee to full extension and then go back and take care of the problem in the first place, the posterior capsule and posterior osteophytes. Then you got a knee that goes into hyperextension and you have to add augments on it to keep it from hyperextending. So <laughs> you're so right. First, make the bone cuts. That gives you access to all the osteophytes. Then take all of the osteophytes out and get a pristine knee to work with. Then put in the trials or, or spacer blocks and balance the ligaments. I read an article recently about mid-flexion instability uh, being less of an implant issue and more of a soft tissue issue. And I was just curious, do you think a proper balancing of the knee addresses a majority of that subject? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it, it, it requires that you get the knee in in the right position in the first place. And the best way to do that is with balanced anatomic surface cuts where you remove the thickness of the implant from the high side to the undeformed side of the joint. There's always one that's high and the other and the other one low. Rarely uh, both about the same. And with with that, you uh, get the 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 basic bone anatomy established such that it'll hold you correctly in flexion and extension once you get the ligaments balanced. A couple more clinical questions, doctor. I was fascinated reading a paper that you wrote uh, detailing single-stage revision for infected hips and knees and essentially reimplantation yeah. <laughs> with porous components and then a Hickman's catheter for six weeks with some high-dose yeah. antibiotics. Is that still your yeah. treatment of choice? Absolutely. I'm pushing that uh, as, as hard as I can uh, to the orthopedic community. You know, th they're still piddling around with uh, with intravenous antibiotics and with spacers, and that's all. That's just enough to piss off the bacteria. Uh, you know, we we and 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 give them ammunition to 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 uh, and, and intelligence. You're losing the battle with all of that. Uh, and we learned in medical school, all of us did that small, piddly doses of antibiotics given over a short period of time creates antibiotic resistance. And the way to uh, eliminate infection is with high-dose, long-term antibiotics. That eradicates the bacteria to the point that the patient's immune system and, uh, and, and other mechanisms of resistance of infection can then take over. And you know that in urinary tract infection, that's the way you get a chronic uh, urinary tract infection with resistant organisms. Give them a couple of days of low-dose antibiotics. And then they, uh, after one after another, they keep getting these infections and get sicker and sicker. But that's what we still do in orthopedics. The, the, and the, for some reason, the academicians uh, are following along with the um, and infectious disease guys who tell you 
that you can just use oral antibiotics suppressively for a long period of time, or that this spacer is going to be of some help to you. And the spacer will release um, enough antibiotics to give you maybe 100, maybe 200, if you're lucky, micrograms, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, micrograms per milliliter or milligrams per liter. That is about one one tenth or maybe one thousandth of what you need to kill biofilm. Now, that, we ought to, we have to discuss biofilm or if we're going to talk about implant infection. Biofilm is so resistant to bacteria that you have to increase the concentration of bacteria by a thousand times or more to eradicate biofilm. Any, any, uh, discipline that is dealing with infection of implants should be in dealing with minimum biofilm eradication com, uh, uh, concentration, MBEC, MBEC. And if you're not achieving MBEC, MBEC, with your mechanism of treatment, you're going to have a high failure rate. And I'll tell you that antibiotic spacers loaded with cement and uh, and the, that cement uh, impregnated with with bacteria, with antibiotics are ineffective. A hundred micrograms per milliliter is ineffective on biofilm. So you're you're going to fail at a high rate. Infusion can give you fifteen thousand micrograms per milliliter, and I guarantee you that's effective. There was an article out years ago, and I've got it somewhere, but it was talking about the therapeutic level of uh, antibiotics that you had to have to at least do something. And it was astounding when they plotted it on a graph as to how many antibiotic cements were basically one and done within 24 to 48 hours. I, I was surprised yeah. by that. Yeah, done. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they, they have, uh, it, the antibiotics have leased out, and even at that that their highest point is still ineffective against biofilm. And, and but direct infusion, uh, when you do the when you do the debridement in the first place, and also when you do the primary joint, you should be irrigating with high dose antibiotics, broad spectrum. So I use a thousand, excuse me, five thousand milligrams of, of vancomycin per liter and. 500,000 uh, units of polymyxin per liter in my irrigation fluid so that when I'm finished operating, that's a sterile joint. I don't care if you've operated on it for five hours. You irrigate throughout the procedure, just like I said in the machine shop. You clean up after yourself throughout every step of the way. You end up with a sterile joint that has antibiotic closed up inside it. When you close it, it stays sterile and when you've got an infected joint you do that plus you start infusing antibiotics directly into the joint and if you don't know what's in there you start with broad spectrum i start with vancomycin one day and gentamicin the next day and alternate until i figure out whether it's a gram positive or gram negative 
Uh, let's talk about your washouts for a minute. I was at one time seeing them use what they called witch's brew, which was uh, saline, betadine, and hydrogen peroxide when they were washing out an infected yeah. joint. Any uh, any yeah. potions that you prefer in your cases? No, I think that's horrible. And one of the last things you should do is use antiseptics in a in a joint. It damages every tissue that you're trying to get to heal. It damages bone cells, cartilage cells, synovial cells, skin cells. It's I think it's just horrible. Uh, using that stuff in in a human wound is crazy. When we have antibiotics now, maybe uh, that sort of thing would be okay. Uh, Back in the Middle Ages, <laughs> Middle Ages is when they would they would uh, put a, uh, a a goat a goat shit uh, compress on a on a fresh uh, burn because it stimulated pus formation. A similar sort of logic, I think. Nickel allergies. I remember giving surgeons many years ago these discs to put on their patient's skin. Uh, to check for that. And then we discovered that was really an incomplete picture. I've heard three camps over the years. I've heard that it's not an issue. I've heard it is an issue. And then I've heard other people say, well, really, it's just a legal issue. Um, because uh, if the patient says they didn't do well and I didn't acknowledge it with a change of implants, then I'm going to get sued. Uh, I was just curious where, where you come down on this debate. Well, I've been studying that every day for years. Uh, and and I assure you that um, uh, metal sensitivity is uh, is real and it's serious business. If you look through the orthopedic literature, it's loaded with problems with metal sensitivity, and and sometimes just a, a, a cobalt chromium alloy plate will cause total body metal sensitivity and even uh, things such as neurotoxicity and strokes, and, and the patient not cured until the plate's taken out. Back in the, the 70s, we had the, these metal-on-metal metal hips that were put in, and, and a huge epidemic among arthroplastics, arthroplasty surgeons of uh, metal sensitivity illness, loosening, uh, and pseudotumor formation. It, it disappeared when the metal-on-poly came out. And I, by the way, I think that's Charnley's greatest contribution is metal-on-polyethylene. Because it didn't cause this metal hypersensitivity. So the the metal on metal came back. Metal sensitivity because of the dosage level came back uh, it, with a vengeance, and almost everybody who were who dealt with metal on metal hips uh, uh, quit, and their patients paid a great price for that. Uh, and so. Is, um, metal on metal hips is pretty much gone now. In fact, it's ceramic on polyethylene, and I'm sure we're headed for a ceramic femoral surface in the knee. Uh, that's where I'm putting my, my greatest emphasis right now. The, the femoral component in the knee distinctly releases metal, no doubt about it. There are all sorts of studies that show that metal is released by the femoral component. There are also lots of good studies in the literature that show that metal sensitivity increases, doubles its percentage after you put a total knee replacement in the patient. There are patients 
in in every major medical center that have metal sensitivity and are severely disabled uh, from it. And and I've I've got a patients that have been sent to me from all over the world with metal sensitivity after total knee replacement. It's a big issue, but it's hard to deal with now because we don't have a, a, a an inert femoral component that's reliable to use without cement. And then uh, I'll tell you what, that's what's going to come and that's what's going to change our approach. Uh, you, you hear a lot of people say, well, 10%, maybe 15% of patients uh, with uh, total knee replacements are dissatisfied. They have intermittent swelling and you can't really find anything wrong with their x-rays. And they say, well, it's because of um, uh, uh, some subtle ligament imbalance or maybe the wrong size implant. My feeling is that uh, knee replacements are not so good because of that toxic femoral component that we have in there. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you where the pressure is going to come from. Uh, European uh, version of the FDA has already required labeling of any chromium metal that's put in the body as potentially carcinogenic. It's getting people's attention. And wow. we're going to have to stop putting this toxic femoral component into the knee. We're going to have to stop doing that. The dentists have stopped a long time ago putting cobalt chromium metal into people's mouths because so many people reacted to it. So we better do it. We better get on this. And that's, that's where I'm focusing on everything that I'm doing. That plus infection issue, as you know. The Ceram Tech is pretty much own the ceramic world. I think if uh, no matter what company you're with, if a ceramic head is called for, it's a pink one. Tell me about these white heads yeah. I saw the other day, magnesia stabilized zirconia. Yeah, that's the, that's the key to success is magnesia stabilized zirconia. Uh, that's uh, among the uh, ceramic engineers known as uh, the uh, super alloy of ceramics. It's uh, got enough flexibility that it has great fracture toughness, and you can make things out of it uh, that uh, you that you ordinarily couldn't make out of something as as brittle as alumina uh, ceramics. Magnesia stabilized zirconia is uh, is uh, flexible enough to to be able to use to, to even be used as a femoral component in total knee. And it makes an excellent uh, femoral head. Uh, these these uh, uh, implants actually outperform the Ceramtech um, ZTA uh, zirconia ceramics. You know, uh, the, the uh, Ceramtech uh, ceramic is uh, called ZTA, zirconia toughened alumina. Uh, it's, it's actually sort of a conglomerate, like a like the uh, the conglomerates that you studied in in geology. It's a bunch of uh, 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 different crystalline structures uh, packed together, primarily alumina and zirconia, uh, and that gives it a certain toughness. But it's not so tough that they uh, can make these without a metal inner liner. So most of them have a metal inner liner that they that, that they rely on for for toughness. 
Magnesium stabilized zirconia, if it's made correctly, does not require a metal, metal inner liner. And it is uh, heat resistant and water resistant uh, and, and is pretty much a lifetime implant. Um, zirconia toughened alumina that Ceramtech uses does roughen in an aqueous environment and is not heat stable. Enough for biological use, I don't think. So I think their uh, Ceramtech is looking for the for an alternative to that, and I don't think they're looking in the right spot. I've been using these uh, magnesium stabilized zirconia implants for years. I mean, close to twenty years without a failure. No failure of these implants have ever been reported with over 20,000 implanted and uh, and I'm in the process of working on a femoral component for the total knee and I think that's that is going to make a big difference. I talked to a surgeon this morning who followed up on one of your cementless unis uh, out in Arizona that was 18 years out and doing awesome. Now, I can understand back in the 90s, there was some reticence to do a uni because some of the designs weren't faring well. And and honestly, we were still figuring out the technique. You know, you don't balance it like a total knee. You leave a little slack. Mm -hmm. You know, I can understand Mm -hmm. all that. But now that we've worked out a lot of those kinks, why do you think there's still reluctance in some quarters in the presence of uh, isolated compartment arthritis to do a uni? Yeah, because it's harder to do it just right. I'm telling you, uni compartmental knee replacement is a real technician's operation. And uh, you've got to be patient and slow down and do it absolutely right. And we're talking about millimeters as opposed to centimeters <laughs> when, when, uh, when, when you do this, uh, when you do the uni knee. Uh, it's one of the hardest operations uh, in orthopedics, maybe the hardest operation, is a uni compartmental knee. And, and then, of course, you leave leave the rest of the joint that may or may not perform well for the rest of the patient's life. And so you might be embarrassed by a late failure due to progressive arthritis. You have to do a good job of selecting the patients and counseling the patients on what to expect after a uni knee. And what I tell them is a uni knee would be most likely to give you a knee that's going to function like your own knee. It has lower infection rate, lower complication rate in terms of the primary operation, in, 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 at least in, in the literature. Uh, but it may fail due to failure of the rest of your knee, that the loosening rate is can, can be almost zero in a good technical surgeon's hands. But the big downside is the rest of the joint. And some of them will look at you and say, well, just do it all then. And the ones that say, no, I want you to save every bit of my knee that you possibly can. And that kind of makes the decision. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I've never had one, but the proprioception would be a lot better with a uni uh, than a total. Yeah, I'd love to have, if I had a medial compartmental uh, issue, I'd love to have a very excellent technician do a uni knee because I know that can give you a knee that functions well for years, but I, but I wouldn't want a cemented uni. Uh, it's interesting that the Oxford group has already shown that their cementless uni is outperforming their own cemented uni. Interesting. You brought up a UTI earlier uh, in passing, and it took a while for that to get through my head. Uh, a question that I see come up, I have some surgeons, if there's a presence of a UTI uh 
that morning. They will just do the case anyway. And then there's some surgeons that say absolutely not. What What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, if they have an active urinary tract infection, I don't operate. Okay. I do not operate on them because uh, they are bacteremic if they've got a, a UTI going. I don't take that chance. I don't send them home if they come in with painful urine and they've been on antibiotics for a couple of days, I send them directly home and get that all cleaned up. Now, if they've got a chronic ongoing urinary tract infection, that's another decision to make, whether or not they are a candidate for total joint replacement. And uh, I I must say, I almost never have to make that decision. So, Dr. Whiteside, 200 publications, you've invented three knee systems, two unicompartmental uh, systems, and three hips. What's uh, what's next? Well, I'm, I'm working on an infusion system that can be made such the F- that the FDA will accept a direct infusion into the knee and will give people some confidence that this is not just off-label use and you're some kind of a cowboy for doing it. So that's a that's a big one, I think. Uh, the the other is uh, is a, a ceramic femoral component for total knee replacement, a, a, a cementless uh, implant that uh, that will give you a lifetime of service, all the advantages of ceramics, and get the toxic cobalt chromium out of the knee. Uh, an, another one is uh, a reconstruction of the abductors of the hip we didn't talk much about the hip and over the last oh, 15 years or so i've learned a lot about the abductor muscles and have uh, really focused on reconstructing or at least identifying and fixing what you uh, have to look for at a total hip replacement and then reconstructing using gluteus maximus flap transfers and sometimes tensor fascia lot of flap transfers for addressing this this important issue uh and of course uh, you, you know i'm going to be continuing to press on the ligament balancing <laughs> in total knee replacement sure. I, I refuse to give up <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell me about Costa Rica. I was reading an article uh, recently about this wildlife sanctuary you're involved in, and uh, tell me, tell me what's going on. Well, you know, I've uh, been fascinated by the tropics since I was a kid. I mean, I can't remember a time that I wasn't just fascinated by palm trees and tropical jungles, and uh, and I kept that interest all through my childhood and adulthood. Uh, and for a while, I, I thought uh, it, it's a almost an impossible dream, but I'd love to have a place on on the Pacific coast in Costa Rica with a biological team to to look at some of these interesting questions like marine turtles, where they nest and how, where they actually go and what makes that life cycle work. And so about 15 years ago, I took one of these uh, little tours where they advertised the Wall Street Journal for $599. You get a, you know, you, they give you an airfare to Costa Rica, five days of a rental car, <clears throat> and five nights in, in hotels uh, with, with food. And, and involved out there, thought, I can't pass that up. So I took this thing and went to Costa Rica and uh, worked my way down to the 
the southern Pacific coast of, of Costa Rica and started looking around. And I stumbled on a place that was 100 acres or it was uh, easily expandable to 100 acres there on the Pacific coast with a couple of streams running through it into the into the ocean. And it was just perfect for what I wanted to do. It had a couple of buildings on it that I could rehab. And so I started working on it. And it took about four years before I got it where I could take my family down there. Now they're really delighted to go. We have a, a wildlife reserve that brings people in from all over the world to volunteer and uh, do a, uh, uh, a marine turtle project. Or we have now a crocodile project, uh, a uh, tropical mammals project uh, and they they spend a week to a year with with us uh, sometimes doing graduate work we have a full-time biology staff that's that works there all the time and um, a permanent wildlife reserve very very it, it, very important endeavor in my mind it, we are actually doing some uh, significant work on marine turtles and uh, uh, and also on the effect of urbanization on water runoff in uh, and and tropical environments maybe you could host a conference down there for device reps that host uh, medical device podcasts <laughs> yes. yeah. I, I know a, a guy <laughs> Well, we don't allow insect <laughs> repellent on the premises, so you'd have to be ready to swallow oh, a couple of bugs. I imagine. I imagine there's some big <laughs> ones down there. Yeah. So lastly, and this is just to resolve, you know, in music, it's the song that has never resolved for me. I, I tried to remember for years the, the, the presentation that I saw you do at the Vail meeting. Those, those meetings were wonderful, by the way. They were, I, yes. I always enjoyed mm-hmm. hearing different voices, always enjoyed yours, especially if it didn't line up with, uh, with what I believed at the time. I thought, you know, the, every idea needs a challenge, and uh, it helps us understand everything a little better. And you were talking about a revision hip that you had come up with, and I'll never forget the rasp on your slideshow. It was a square, long stem, and you were yep. talking mm-hmm. about the rotational stability of that square rasp in a round hole. And it, it always stuck yep. with me that that made total sense. Uh, what yep. was that? Mm-hmm. What was it? What was I looking at? Well, it was it was uh, the the Quattro Lock and Quattro M uh, revision system, and you know I still use that concept in primary hips. It's just that. Uh, the FDA has been so difficult to deal with in a with a fully porous coated monoblock stem that is that that project is is uh, is on hold. But you know that was our that was a great stem, simple, easy to work with, and uh, very easily understandable. And you could revise this the entire spectrum with a total of nine different stems. Uh, and, and that took care of the little tiny folks and great big people with, with catastrophic bone loss. You had to have a good cable system, but you, uh, the, with that sort of technology, we could, we could get any surgeon to handle a really tough uh, revision femur. So how many years have you been doing this, sir? Well, let me see. I got into orthopedics in... Uh, uh, 1970. How long is that then? Now? <laughs> yeah, How long is that? Uh, Fifty years. <laughs> That's a couple <of> years. 
Wow. So what are you the most proud of? I mean, if you had to hang your hat on a couple things that kind of jump out at you over your career, uh, what's the thing you said, you know, I'm so glad I did that, or that was a lot of fun? Well, I, I must say, I'm glad that I took a few years of my career early on to really focus hard on biomechanical research and, uh, and and that sort of endeavor. It gave me a background that I could use the rest of my life to talk uh, talk myself how to manage statistics and and to to understand scientific uh, method a little bit and, uh, and so so that's the I, I think the the best decision I made. It's a little stressful on my family, uh, and and uh, but it was it was definitely uh, it was definitely made a difference. And, uh, and I guess the other thing is I'm so glad that I chose orthopedics as a specialty. It's been a wonderful trip, and and still and gives me more more than I can <laughs> more than I can do right now. I will tell you that uh, if you expect to learn. Uh, orthopedics, forget about it. I mean, there's more than that you can uh, learn in a lifetime uh, just to be good at it. I'm always disappointed in myself that I'm not good enough yet. I've been doing this all my life. Uh, so it's uh, it's one of those things that, uh, that that's a, a curse and a blessing. It, it's a blessing to have something so fascinating to do all the time. And and but it's a curse to to have to put up with the uh, frustration of not being good enough at it yet. Well, you've certainly been a blessing to this industry, and uh, has certainly been one of the preeminent voices in the joint reconstruction space for for now fifty years. Uh, yes. Thank you, thank you so much for your your contributions to it, and and for sharing your your life with my audience. I just uh, really really am grateful. Well, it's very, it's very much a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thank you very much. You're flat, I'm flattered to have this opportunity. The one takeaway quote that Dr. Whiteside said that just totally blew me out of my chair was, I'm always disappointed that I'm not good enough yet, and I've been doing this my whole life. Now, wasn't that incredible? If anybody has a lofty perch to stand on and to tell everybody else what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing and and all that, it's this gentleman. But to say that just uh, was incredible to me. What a sense of humility that as, even as much as he's accomplished, he knows how much farther he has to go. What a great perspective. What a great perspective for us as we continue to unpack that wonderful word, humility. So let's work on that this week, and I'm counting myself in this. Uh, let's work on being available, not only to our customers, but to those around us. And and just as a little aside, I have this phrase that goes around in my head all the time, as in device, as in life. These are broad-spectrum ideas that we're sharing here. And we want that sense of availability across the board, not only with our customers, not only with our team members, but with our wife, with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, our significant others all around us, to always be that person that will drop everything to help somebody out who needs something and do it with a smile on her face, right? Not just be that person who does it for people that can give us something in return. That's just fee-for-service stuff, right? That's not, uh, that's not true availability. So let's, let's work on that this week. So I hope all that stuff was helpful today. 
I have the best audience in the podcast world. I firmly believe that. It's a lot of great reps out there. And we're all just kind of going through this thing together, and we have that same mindset as Dr. Whiteside, that we're a little disappointed that we're not good enough yet, and we've been doing this thing as long as we have. And that's what makes you good. As long as you know that, you're going to keep striving to get better, and you're going to keep acquiring more knowledge and more experiences to iteratively get better each and every week. And that's what we're here for at Device Nation, is to try to provide that forum to that end, where we can all just get together once a week and talk about these things and hopefully get better. Next week, there was a great quote by author James McKay that said, tomorrow you promise yourself will be different, yet tomorrow is too often a repetition of today. Isn't that good? Well, let's not make that this week. Let's look for an opportunity uh, in what we talked about this week, that it won't be a repetition of today, that we're actually going to get better across the board in this stuff. Good? I hope you have an awesome week. And again, I'm so thankful you're out there participating and being a part of the show. I really appreciate each and every one of you. And let's all be strong, be smart, and be positive. Be available. And most importantly, be safe. Device Nation.